Welcome everyone to Society Behind the Stat. I'm Adam. And I'm Scott. And today we're going to be talking about Gen Z activism. The stat for today's episode comes fresh from our WINS CSIP polling. And it is that 79% of people say that the COVID-19 pandemic has opened their eyes to major cracks in society and government. And because of that, it breeds about what we're going to be talking about today, activism. Why? Because mass uprisings and protests are sweeping the country. And because activism is both a way to highlight that these cracks in society need fixing and a spark by which the process to fix them can begin. And because we're digging into activism, we landed at a guest who in the last week has been the quintessential embodiment of that. We're going to be talking today with Alicia. She is a Gen Z activist from Canada who was one of the TikTokers responsible for epically trolling Donald Trump's Tulsa rally last week. And before we get to the interview, Scott, I know you want to riff on this a little bit. So the floor is yours, my friend. Yeah, yeah. So less of a riff and more of just providing some context and a chronology of, of events as kind of a background for our conversation today. So with everything that's been going on, widespread protests around racial injustice in America, President Trump uh, sort of takes a break from his, his increasingly masturbatory fantasies of using state-sanctioned violence against his own citizens to decide to hold a campaign rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma, on June 19th. So as many people pointed out very quickly, there were major components of this decision that were essentially a racist dog whistle. And I wanna kind of talk a little bit about that. And I wanna talk a little bit about what happened. So you know, unfortunately, uh, these types of racist dog whistles designed to appeal to a portion of the president's base are actually not uncommon in American politics, particularly on the right. But essentially, the decision of all places to hold this rally in Tulsa and the decision to hold it originally on June 19th was no mistake. Tulsa, Oklahoma is the site of one of the greatest historic injustices, acts of terrorism committed against African-Americans in modern American history. I'm talking about the Tulsa Race Massacre, which occurred in 1921 a mob of white people, including police officers, as well as the KKK, killed up to an estimated 400 black people over a couple of days of violence, displaced possibly tens of thousands of more black Tulsans as a result of burning down their homes. It is one of the most despicable acts of terrorism in American history, one that is almost never taught in school. So I would suggest uh, I spent some time online learning and searching for the Tulsa Race Massacre. So that's one dog whistle component of this decision. The other was the date on which the rally was originally scheduled to be held, June 19th. That date is Juneteenth. And for those who don't know, Juneteenth is a holiday. Uh, it's a holiday of celebration, also known uh, in some areas as Jubilee. And it celebrates the actual emancipation, not the proclaimed emancipation, but the actual emancipation of enslaved people in America. And so the decision, and by the way, it should be much more widely celebrated. The decision to hold this rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma on June 19th was a total racist dog whistle. I think you have to go back pretty far. Maybe Ronald Reagan in 1980, who decided to kick off his uh, election campaign against Jimmy Carter in the town of Philadelphia, Mississippi, a town that had no strategic significance, uh, but had symbolic significance where he gave a states' rights speech 
a few miles from where the bodies of three civil rights workers were found buried after they were murdered in 1964, the events of which were depicted in the, the Mississippi burning story. So you've got to go back, I think, a few years to find something that has much of a racist dog whistle tinge as the president's uh, anticipated rally in Tulsa. Now, because of initial outrage, the the president's campaign decided to move the rally from the 19th to the 20th, still held at Tulsa. So on the eve of the Tulsa rally, this guy, Brad Parscale, who I think mm-hmm. he's Trump's campaign manager, he announced that they've had more than 1 million ticket requests for the event. Trump tweeted it. This guy, Brad Parscale, what, who is this guy? Yeah, so so Parscale is, I think he was the digital guy last time. He's the campaign manager this time. He's sort of like... He's also, if you talk to anyone in democratic circles, he's like this digital boogeyman. And he's kind of got this vibe where he's like one part modern day Karl Rove, uh, but also kind of looks like he's a roadie for his easy top. Got it. And if, and if Scott, if we're talking to a Gen Zer, what's a reference that they would understand? I think ZZ Top is an iconic American band. <laughs> and if you're a Gen Zer listening to this podcast, you should go with YouTube ZZ Top. Or, and if you're a Gen Zer, you could just fast forward to Alicia. So anyway, the event is a total flop. Yeah, it's a giant wet fart, and the president had to walk around with it in his pants for like the rest of the week. And per news reports, only 6,000 or so showed up for a venue that had 20,000 seats and all the extensions and all that stuff outside that they ended up breaking down. And the president looked uncomfortable the whole time. Yeah, uh, I don't care how good your advanced team is. And these are the people who are just, who, whose job on the campaign is to like set up events and make sure everything looks good on media. I don't care how skilled they are. There's no way to make a stadium with two thirds empty seats look full. It's just impossible. And so it turns out that one of the major reasons why the event was a dud was because an army of Zoomer activists on TikTok, additionally K-pop stands, epically trolled the MAGA rally by signing up for tickets using fake information with absolutely no intention of attending. Yeah, and this got, this was covered pretty extensively in the media, including the failing New York Times, uh, which wrote, uh, uh, article whose headline was TikTok teens and K-pop stands say they sank Trump rally. The Times published another article that was uh, titled The President's Shock at Rows of Empty Seats in Tulsa. But for my money, I think the best summation of all of this was a tweet that Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, of New York sent to Mr. Parscale uh, after he tried to blame the failure of his rally on you know, Antifa or, or some crap like that. And so AOC tweets, Actually, you just got rocked by teens on TikTok who flooded the Trump campaign with fake ticket reservations and tricked you into believing a million people wanted to hear your white supremacist open mic enough to pack an arena during COVID. Shout out to Zoomers. Y'all make me so proud. And today on Society Behind the Stat, we're proud to talk with Alicia, a Canadian Gen Z activist and one of the leading forces behind this viral Trump TikTok trolling. And our interview with Alicia starts now. All right, so we are here with Alicia, an activist, an actor, and one of the driving forces behind the TikTok phenomenon that caused President Trump and his allies to vastly overestimate and brag about what turned out to be a very poorly attended rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And the statistic that we're gonna use as the jumping off point is from a recent poll that we conducted where we found that 79% of Americans say the COVID-19 pandemic has opened their eyes to major cracks in society and government. And when we think about this, cracks require fixing and a change. And one of the major themes that has come in the last month to push forward change is activism. And that's what we'll be talking about with Alicia today. So Alicia, welcome. Hi. 
the question that I have for you to start off is what is activism? I think that activism can kind of be defined in a bunch of different ways, especially for how an individual person perceives it themselves. To me, activism is going out and fighting to make a change. I've done a lot of activism in the past just online because I'm almost 20, so I am still fairly young, and there wasn't a whole lot that I could do, but as I kind of became an adult, activism changed for me and it was going out and it was making these fights. It was doing blockades so that the public had to pay attention to us and they had to hear what we had to say for us to allow them to continue. And that to me is what activism is. It's that protesting until your voice is heard. And I'm curious, what is it about the COVID-19 era that we're in now that's making activism a thing? We're all inside and we're all on our phones a lot more. I know that I'm on my phone, like before my work had opened up, I was on my phone literally every second of the day. And now that everyone is kind of always online, they're always watching what's happening. So when something happens, such as, you know, George Floyd's murder, Everyone was watching it and they all saw it. And immediately that's why there was so much outrage on it is because it reached everyone at the same time. Whereas if you look at Brunoa Taylor's case, that has just passed like a hundred days now. Um, Back then, not as many people were online, not as many people were on their phones. And I think that if that had happened now, we would have gotten the same outrage as we did with George Floyd. Alicia, what makes an activist? What is that sort of tipping point that makes to turn someone from a a well-intentioned person into an activist who's out there actually doing something? For me, what happened was I was just somebody who was very much I want I want the world to be better, but but I don't know how to do it. I just want everyone to be happy. I was very I didn't like conflict. I was very against it. And I was just kind of like, I don't know. I just want people to be happy. I, I just want everyone to be okay. But now my tipping point was understanding that change begins with you as an individual person uh, without one person stepping up and saying, I want to make a change. We would not have as big of a group as there is. There was 12,000 people in Vancouver who were protesting for Black Lives Matter. And without one individual person kind of stepping up and being like, I want to make a change so I can have a better future for my generation and those to come. Without that happening, we wouldn't have as much activism. And that's kind of how it changed for me was understanding that I want my voice to be heard, to make a change. And to do that, I have to go out and do it myself. That's, that's really interesting. And I've always believed that one of the best ways to really get to know a person, or frankly, even to get to know a, a generation, uh, is to hear the story of their own political evolution. What were some of the major events or experiences that shaped the beliefs that you hold about politics, about activism, or about society overall? What kind of changed it for me? Honestly, I was I was never really into politics until the election where our Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was first brought into office. That's when I kind of began to get into politics because that's when I began to understand that Canada's leader 
affects my life and what happens here. And I didn't fully understand that until he first got elected. But so you were you were about how old then? I was probably about 15. Like I was born okay. in 2000. So that was like, I was kind of in my mid-teens when I had understood, like, I may not be into politics, but I should understand them and how they affect my life. And doing the research on local government, our provincial and our federal government kind of began to open my eyes. And that's actually kind of when my activism had started was understanding the government and actually how they were ruining Canada and how they were hurting Canada and hurting smaller communities in the country. You also told me about another one yesterday. Do you want to talk about that one too? So when I was 14, uh, I had made a friend in high school who is a person of color. They couldn't afford to live in Canada anymore. So they had moved to Missouri, which is kind of where her family was. And I like, I love this woman to death. Um, she is still such a huge icon in my life. She had to move to Missouri, which to my understanding is a very racist state. And through high school, she had experienced so much racism. There was a lot of her teachers who advocated for Trump very vocally. And she felt, you know, she felt um, unsafe. And after the election where Trump was elected, she like stayed home for like, I think it was for a week. She couldn't, and understanding that and seeing her and hearing her stories about it was when I kind of began to understand like, this is happening and it affects people. And then you realize when it affects people who are close to you and who are in your life, it's very different. And you kind of understand like, this is not okay and I need to make a change because I want it to be better for her. I want it to be better for people who have experienced stuff like her. And so that's kind of probably where my activism had started as well uh, within understanding the issues with people of color. And what were, based on that experience with your friend, sort of actions did you take? There wasn't a lot, as a Canadian, there wasn't a lot I could do because she was in America but it was a lot of learning because I feel, you know, before you can really activate for something, before you can put yourself out there and fight for it, you need to understand what you're fighting for and the impact of it. So it just kind of started a period of just a lot of learning, some self-reflecting on what can I do personally, what changes can I make that may be, like what traits of mine are toxic, do I need to change? Um, and it kind of began that education and then trying to reach out and be a bit of support for people who need the help, understanding what they're going through and what changes you can make, calling out racism when you see it in the streets, calling it out when you see it in your family. And it was just kind of small stuff like that. Let's say you bring up a really good question that I want to ask more about, Alicia, because I'm, I'm sort of personally, I'm kind of undecided on this. Is it activism to want to educate oneself or to watch what you say or change your own behaviors, is that actually activism or is that something that's a step below activism? I think it's a part of it. 
definitely with activism, you need to learn what you are fighting for and understanding why you're fighting for it and what you can do. Whereas the activism is going out and or online um, and just being the change and attempting to make the change. But before you can do the change, you have to understand what's happening and why it needs to happen or why it needs to stop happening. So Adam and I are generationally, we would count as millennials. I'm like the literally the older extreme end of the millennials. Adam, you're sort of dead, dead in the center. Right in the middle. And right in the middle. There's a lot of research out there and the, the you know, media narrative that sort of suggests that you know, millennials across North America, Western Europe are less engaged politically than their elders, both in the traditional forms of political participation, as well as activism and protests, other forms of oppositional civic activity. A little bit more apathetic than generations that came before us. And I think your generation, I think is very, very different. I, I think objectively or anecdotally, you guys are involved in a way that I don't think the millennials ever were. And, and I'm just curious, why, why do you think that is? Like, what's, what's the vibe? There is a lot of difference in how involved the generations are with certain things. There are millennials who go out and protest and who think, sure. you know, there's a change that needs to happen. And there are Gen Zs who do the same. But it's also a little bit different. What I think, and I may be wrong, but this is just kind of how I perceive it is I've seen the baby boomers ruin the economy. I've seen them destroy my future. Growing up and understanding like you're making it harder for me when I'm your age and you don't care. And I've seen the millennials try to fix it, but they didn't know how. So they didn't, it, it wasn't very successful the millennials, they, they just didn't know what to do. And so the Gen Z, we've seen what has not worked and we're staying away from it and we're going on to another idea. And then there's this frustration that's kind of been building through the years of seeing baby boomers and millennials kind of ruin our future. And it's that anger has kind of, we've put it into our ways of protesting. And that's why you'll notice that a lot of Gen Z are very aggressive people. And in the riots, it's always the Gen Zs who are kicking the, the tear gas back at the police. It's them who are screaming. It's them kind of at the front lines. And it's because there's so much anger that has built up and trying to make a change and nobody will listen to us. The amount of times that I have heard, well, you're only 19. You don't really know. You don't, like, you don't know what you're talking about. You're just a kid. I've done the I've done the the learning. I've done my research so I do know what's happening. And that's why I'm out here in the streets. That's why I'm fighting. That's why I show up to the Black Lives Matter marches is because I've done the research and I see what's going on and I know the change that has to be made and nobody will listen unless we push. And I think Word. that's where the difference is. That is yep. I, you know I, I haven't heard that as articulately and concisely and powerfully put as you just stated it. The idea that the idea that you know our generation, the millennial generation, was was sort of a test case, right? That you could stare at and say, these guys, you know, maybe tried uh, and and they didn't they didn't succeed. I think the idea of you know because the way the way that we grew up and Adam, I don't know if you were the same way, but like older millennial crack was like watching the west wing 
right? Like we grew up on the West Wing. We grew up that like politics is this game that's played on the debate stage at Harvard and whoever has the best argument in the confines of the rules of the debate sort of wins the day and it's these grandiose speeches and always taking the high road. And I think along the way, certainly our generation maybe forgot what it's like to, to actually fight in the street, forgot what it's like to actually put your something more substantial than your, just your reputation on the line. It's really interesting to hear you talk about it that way, about looking at the failures and the idealism of generations before you and saying the world that you guys created through your perspective of change isn't so great and we're going to do it differently. That's really powerful. Yeah. And the other thing that strikes with me is you use the word aggressive. And at least for me as a younger millennial, the seminal movie that I think, or one of them that describes millennials is The Social Network for a lot of reasons. But one of the scenes that always sticks with me is Jesse Eisenberg plays Mark Zuckerberg. The Winklevoss twins have him in the, in the house or whatever. And they're like, hey, I heard Microsoft offered you like, you know, millions of dollars for this music thing that you created, but you just uploaded it to the internet for free. Why'd you do that? And he just shrugged his shoulders and that's the scene. And there's just so much apathy there where that's the other piece of it too. And for you to say aggressive, and for me, it's for millennials, it's that movie and that scene. And for you, it's actually, we were out in the streets and kicking cans back at the cops and we grew up in this and this is our reaction and our fight to do what's right. Alicia, as far as your activism goes and being an activist, do you find that it is it is it a requirement for you to try to bring friends, family and acquaintances into the fold? What is, what is your job? Is it to get other people's attention? Is it to build a movement? Is it all of the above? Yeah, I think it ha- it's a lot of those things. I, I have friends who would much rather just support the, the movement in the background and they'll post about it and they'll promote it. So I don't think necessarily to be an activist and to be a part of it that you have to go out and you have to show up Although, yes, it's important, I've made a lot of friends through activism. I have definitely educated a lot of my friends on certain things, but I think that um, activism, it's, it's just important to understand why people feel there needs to be a change. And a lot of times people are quick to dismiss like change. They don't, they don't want change. They say, they think things can stay the same and that's fine. And that can be a very toxic way of thinking because, mm-hmm. um, it's a lot of education as kind of how I see activism. I've definitely educated a lot of my friends on certain things that are going on and they've kind of changed their views after learning what's really happening behind the scenes. And that's probably the most important part of activism. And how do you deal with, from an activist perspective, how do you deal with adversity or setbacks? I feel like there are, over time, with regards to activism, there can be some disappointments. Or maybe not. Or maybe the process of being an activist in and of itself is, is rewarding. I'm just curious as to how you have learned to cope with the ups and downs of, of a struggle. Well, like, it's definitely, it does get very emotional. Activism if you are not emotional about something that you are fighting for, then you do not truly care about it. You and you're do, not really fighting for it. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't mean that you're going to sit at home and cry when something happens. It means that you feel a connection 
to what you're working towards, you understand why it needs to be changed. And when something happens, you do feel upset, you feel disheartened. And, but at the same time, like you understand that your emotions cannot get in the way. I have, I've sat at home and I've cried because I have not, like, I've thought that something wasn't going to get better. I thought that something in the world wasn't going to change that it needed to. But then, you know, you can have those moments of emotional vulnerability, but you also need to understand that once you kind of find a solution, once you find your plan B and you start moving towards it, like you're not always going to be stuck in that spot of something bad has happened and now nothing's going to get better. A really good example is currently I'm in Canada, I'm doing a lot of activism towards protecting the indigenous communities. What's going on here is the police are misplacing indigenous homeless communities off of their own land. Um, and they're just kind of misplacing them throughout the city. There's a lot of arrests that have happened and they're like, 49 was in one day and that was probably one of the biggest setbacks and I was heartbroken seeing everybody scrambling and I I could have sat there and I could have cried and I could have went home and went this is it but I understood that this is upsetting this is happening and I kind of told myself, you can either let this happen or you can make something better of it. So I went around and I kind of collected everyone's personal things that they didn't want the police to have. And I gave them all my number so they could reach me. And I went out and I protected their things until we could find the next place that we were going to try and keep the community protected. We found another tent city pretty much. Once everyone was arrested and released, we were able to move forward and we were able to keep going. And after that, it's actually gotten a lot better. And I was able to kind of get that emotional, my anger, my, my sadness, the anxiety. I felt every, probably every single negative emotion I felt at once, but I was able to kind of let it affect me later. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just and keep on and keep on yeah. with, with the struggle. That's awesome. And, and I, I want to really get into the, the Trump Tulsa TikTok stuff. And so to preface this, I actually think it'd be really helpful for us and for the people who might be listening to this podcast. Alicia, can you kind of tell us you know, what the hell TikTok is? How, how, would you, how, would you describe, how would you describe TikTok, the platform? Um, gosh, TikTok has changed a lot since it was first created. I got it the day that musically changed over to TikTok, I downloaded it and it was it was a whole new world to be completely honest it was a new way to create memes and kind of make fun and that's literally that's all it was is it was fun and it was there was no kind of pressure behind it and i think that that's a lot of like what um what it is is it's it's just a platform to to just have fun. And a lot of people take it very seriously. A lot of people, you know, it's kind of changed into a platform for education as well. There's a lot of people who use it to kind of promote what's going on in the world. There's a lot of people who use it to help students 
learn kind of tips and tricks on like studying and it's just it's just kind of a platform to you know do what you want and have a good time doing it um that's that's fascinating and i like most people my age sort of just discovered tiktok during you know during coronavirus quarantine but all i've done so far adam you might be a little different but all i've done is really watch and i feel like i've posted three and they're terrible yeah, right. I, well, I, so one got the, like 400 views, so and that made me really happy. So <laughs> you're gonna have to guide us. The bar for like engaging via content creation seems pretty intimidating if you don't have someone who's kind of showing you the ropes. I feel like you've got to post content that's specific for TikTok, which is very different than like a Facebook or Instagram, where you can kind of post the same thing across different platforms. So, uh, Alicia, what like, what advice would you give people who are just getting to know TikTok about posting on TikTok? Yeah, you just like, like I said, you just got to have fun with it. You know, you can't take it so seriously. There's a lot of pages on like Instagram who like, you know, they, they feel pressured, you know, you have to have a certain amount of followers before people can think your content is good. And I think that, you know, like with TikTok, I, I post on their stuff that I think is funny that I want to watch to be like, not to sound kind of narcissistic, but I go through my profile probably twice a day and just watch my videos because they're funny to me. And I think that that's important is if you have fun with it and you think that it's funny or you think that it's, it's nice what you're posting is somebody else will. Cause you can't really do something and expect to gain a following if you're not having fun with what you're doing. Yeah, so yeah. let's pivot and let's talk a little bit about TikTok's role in, in Trump's Tulsa train wreck. So Alicia, I'm gonna read a list to you. Okay. New York Magazine recently posted an article titled All the Reasons Trump's Tulsa Rally Was a Complete Disaster. In that article, those reasons were, and there were like 27 reasons, but I'm only gonna say eight right now. So the first was at least eight of his staff members tested positive for COVID-19. Trump treated the coronavirus like a joke and said he asked to slow down testing. He made a racist joke about the virus's origins. He made police remove a woman wearing an I can't breathe shirt from the line before the rally started. Told a long story overcompensating for his bizarre conduct at West Point with the ramp and drinking water with two hands. I'm reading this off. He looked... And if you saw that video of him getting home and getting off the plane and walking with his crumpled up hat and shirt and tie untied, looking completely defeated. By the, way, also- by the way, the water, the water thing, I mean, look, I, I, I try to be an objective observer of stuff, but the, the fact that the MAGA universe was cheering like it was the second coming of John Wayne because this septuagenarian guy walked down a ramp without falling and drank a glass of water with one hand has to be one of the most pathetic dumbing down definitions of masculinity that I've ever heard in my to life. To follow but, a 20 minute please, story where he incoherently continue. talked about it. Yeah. So Alicia, the last two things were flipped out on his team backstage because he was quote, rattled after seeing the small crowd in person. And the last thing that they wrote, and I'm reading this verbatim, expectations might've been lower for the crowd size, if not for an Iowa grandmother on TikTok and those meddling kids. So let's talk about that. Inform our listeners, in your words, Alicia, what you did, how you got involved with it, and what's been going on since. Yeah. Oh, God, no. I always, it, 
I always have to laugh when I hear kind of what's happened because I just have like I did that to him you know I embarrassed him and it wasn't me individually of course everyone who helped out they like they can say and I can say I embarrassed the president of the United States and I just have to laugh but um yeah no as soon as I saw online I posted that video on the 12th um and I saw online after I'd gotten home from work that he was giving out tickets for free uh, and the application was really easy. And I saw that and I kind of went online and I started looking at how to apply. And I immediately thought, how funny would it be if just like nobody showed up? And so I started kind of going through it a little bit. And I saw like the only real information you had to give, I'm pretty sure was your phone number and maybe your email. I didn't give my real email. I, um, I put my name, my first name was Eat and my last name was Shit. And my email was youreracistpig at gmail.com. And um, I was kind of going through and I was like, how funny is it if he like reads these names and just like insulting him? And I realized like that is a possibility. And that's when I kind of took it over to TikTok and I was like, oh, guys, how, how awful is it? I, I accidentally just bought these tickets and I can't go. And I just thought, like, literally the first idea while in the middle of recording, I was like, say you got to pick up your lint. And that's kind of where I went for it. And um, I just, I, uh, I originally was going to stop it at that. And then I went back onto the website and I started going and I was like, they send you a verification code. That's crazy. And you have to put in this zip code. So I was like, I'm going to keep going just to like make an informative video for people who want to do this too. And as I posted it, I was like, this isn't really going to get anywhere. I don't know. I think the most that's going to happen is like maybe a couple thousand likes. And within like two days, I had gotten about 90K likes on it. And I was like, that's insane. And I showed my manager once I hit like hit that kind of time. And I was like, look at this video that I posted. And she thought it was so funny. She's so supportive of it. And really quickly it, it got, it blew up insanely fast. I had like my Dean message me about it. And he was like, I saw your video pop up on my TikTok. It's a shame you can't go. Well done. And then in class, like the next day, he was telling people how proud of me he was for that. And it was so crazy. But no, like my video, I had no kind of goal with it. I didn't think anything was going to happen. And I remember the night of the rally, I got home from work and somebody had sent me my video that they, they, they saw it on Twitter. They're like, hey, I just saw this on Twitter. Is that you? And I was like, yeah, it is. And I went through the tweet. And it was, it, they were using it as an explanation for why Trump's rally was empty. And that's when I had found out it had worked. And I, I cannot explain how insane it was. And just going through, and I had people messaging me being like, you did this, you made it empty, like this was all you. And I was like, I don't, like I, I definitely was not the only person who came up with this idea. I probably wasn't the first one who came up with it, but just kind of seeing that a lot of people were praising me for it and seeing like the actual effect of it. It was a 19,000 person arena, 6,200 people showed up and over a million tickets sold. Right. Like that's it, crazy. It was, 
it was true. I mean, honestly, from a tactical perspective, and look, I've worked on enough political campaigns to know that the, the, these are, you know, these are the types of these are the types of of tactics and approaches that can really make or break a politician. That can really make or break a campaign. That can really make or break an activist movement. And I, I mean, the fact that the fact that th this whole thing would have been what you did and what the you know, tens of thousands, if not millions of other people did, would have been a success if the only thing that happened was the rally was poorly attended. Because by the way, this guy in the history of politicians and presidents of the United States of America, this guy just can't stomach that. It runs the, it's the exact opposite of the, the type of person he is. So you know it cuts deep. On the other side of things, it would have been a success if, if that were the only kind of net net of what you did. But in addition to that, you had Brad Parscale, who is, I guess, currently employed as Trump's you know, campaign director. We'll Might not be by lasts. the time this airs. But by the time this so. podcast airs. We'll see how long that lasts. Bragging about the amazing data that they collected and how their digital operation is top-notch. All the data they collected is from, what was your email address again? <laughs> You're a racist pig at gmail.com. Yeah, so good luck. Good luck data mining and activating that on election day. And, and, and just the fact that you were so successful in, in you know, trolling this vaunted data operation uh, and, and shutting down, uh, not shutting down, but depopulating a rally, uh, it's really, I mean, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, and a lot, of, a lot of people were like, oh, it's because people were scared of COVID, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, Americans aren't scared of the coronavirus like Trump supporting Americans are not scared they don't even think it's real so you're just making up an excuse because you don't want to admit I embarrassed that orange man and and also you know what I love about what I love about this this whole story and everything that kind of went down is I think it's a really great example of what the internet and social platforms actually are I think there's still a lot of people out there, particularly people who make a lot of money in politics, and they kind of see the internet as this organizing tool or like a method to like, you know, fundraise or something. But to some extent, my generation, certainly your generation, sort of see the internet as politics. Like the internet is political. It's sort of where ideas are formed. It's where they're tested and vetted. It's where coalitions are built and, and it has a real impact uh, on the actual world. And, and truthfully, like at least in America, I wish the Democratic Party understood that better because they poured you know, millions and millions of dollars into an app that broke the Iowa caucus, didn't even work. And they're hiring the same people to run Joe Biden and DNC's digital campaign. And, and you guys spent, how much did you spend on the, on the TikTok posts that decimated Trump's rally? I spent like the one minute it took to film it, really. Like and, and I came up with the idea and I immediately was like, that's hilarious. And, and it was, and it was free tickets. So it was like, all it took was barely any time. And you guys, the TikTokers and the, and the K-pop uh, folks that jumped on the bandwagon. It's K-pop stands, shot. Scott. K-pop stands. stands fired the opening shot in the digital, digital activism battle of 2020. So it's a, it really is a fascinating story. Yeah. And it's like, if you look at, American kind of politics, K-pop stands have done 
so much. I had a lot of people come in my comments and they're like, I'm a K-pop stan and I'm going to spread this to the community. I had probably like 50 or some of those comments and I'm like, amazing. I have the best people on the job. Because so, like, so can we, so, for, so half the people who listen to this pod are probably like Adam's parents and my parents. So can, can we just, I think this is good podcast. Is? Can we explain, well, can you explain what a K-pop stan is? So K-pop- Alicia, it's, people probably don't even know what a stan is. So say what a stan <laughs> yeah. is. Get, well, tell them it, about Marshall Mathers, who's, who's our generation. We are talking, we're talking some l- younger millennial into Gen Z lingo here, folks. So listen yeah, up, turn the volume yeah. up on the podcast. So um, Alicia, our Gen Zer, who's going to bring us to the promised future. Tell us what a stan is and then tell us what a K-pop stan is. Okay. So uh, stan kind of comes from uh, one of Eminem's songs. It, I think it was just called Stan, and it was about a fan of his who had wrote, like, he'd written these letters to Eminem just kind of explaining how he's the biggest fan ever, and he was just insane, and he lived, and he breathed Eminem. If you listen to the song, it's, it's very heartbreaking. In the end, because Eminem didn't contact him back, he ended up killing his girlfriend. And so the term Stan came from that, and it's, it's to describe a fan of somebody who would do anything for this person or who knew everything about this person or this group. It's like the, um, ultimate, the ultimate fan, like the yeah, ultimate like, obsessed, obsessed fan. Obsessed yeah, fan. so when you see people and they're like, I stan, it just means like, uh, this is amazing and I follow it and I love it, <laughs> pretty much. And so K-pop is Korean pop. It's like um, Korean pop music. So it's usually boy bands. K-pop stands are a group of very, very interesting people. And it's amazing how much they just live K-pop. And is it like a global audience or is it like a bunch of teenagers in, in like North America? Yeah, yeah. Like, is it all over the place? God, we sound like such... It's everywhere. I have like, I know like friends of friends who are like managers at Cineplex who are, are these huge K-pop stands and they'll watch the K-pop music videos in the back room and they'll rewatch it again when it's done. And there's a lot of American K-pop stands. It is usually kind of the younger kind of teenage groups who are K-pop stands. Personally, I am not, but I love the community so much because of how huge it is. They're willing to use their numbers for chaotic good. This has been this has been so much fun, and I can talk. For <laughs> yeah, like Alicia, two more this hours, has been dope. Or less than uh, two more hours, but um, yeah, I so I want to kind of like circle around and we'll edit this comment out because it's just kind of end a little bit deeply. But I want to end sort of where we started on something that I think is actually certainly meaningful, and that is. I kind of want to talk about something that has worried me over the last several weeks. So as encouraged as I have been by the outpouring of protests and the activism that I've seen uh, in the wake of, of the George, George Floyd murder, and it really is inspiring. Uh, it's inspiring not just to see that level of, of protest change and attention, it's inspiring to also see kind of who is involved. At the same time, it does worry me as a white man in America 
who has a lot of experience about the politics of liberal and centrist white folks in my country. I worry that when it comes to racial issues, white, these allies, right, white liberals and white moderates are kind of like electricity. They always take the path, we always take the path of least resistance. And I feel like what we're seeing with a lot of the protests in person, the online activism is a, is a fantastic first step. Just the number of people who otherwise wouldn't have been participating in something that is defined as activism that are is amazing. But I also see things like, what can I do? And it starts with the first step of education, but it seems like it's going to be a book club or a listening tour. And for a lot of people, it's not going to go any further than that. And that worries me and that scares me. So from your perspective, how do we, uh, as white people, make sure that being an ally in this battle actually means doing something more than just listening, feeling satisfied with that, and, and not going any further? It's an interesting point, and it's something that, that kind of makes, it, it's just making me think a little bit. Because I do, like, I had an answer right away, and then as a white woman, you know, I don't experience what the black community is going through. And I have that privilege. And I think as white people, we need to understand our privilege. We need to see what we as white people are able to get away with that people of color would be discriminated for or kind of put down for. And it's understanding that privilege and understanding how to use it. I was kind of conflicted a lot with, I don't know if I'm using my white privilege to its fullest potential. I don't know, like I feel like there's more I can do, but I had three people within like a week message me and they were like, you're doing amazing. And I've messaged people saying, using you as an example on how to properly use your white privilege and how to kind of fight the fight the right way. And I feel that in understanding your privilege and knowing how to use it, it's also how much can me as an individual do, but also knowing where you need to stop. Because this isn't our fight, the Black Lives Matter movement, it is not our fight, so it is not our spot to stand up and speak about it, because we do not experience it ourselves and so i am using my platform to my platform i don't really have a as big you have a platform sure. <laughs> yeah. alicia you, you have a million plus more views than i've ever had so um it's like understanding that yes i could say these things i could i could say a story that my friends who are people of color have have gone through or I could let them say it because it's their fight and it's their journey and use my voice to amplify them and what they are saying and using your platform to to promote what's happening and how to help and how to kind of lift these people up who need their voices to be heard. I, I, I agree 100% with you. And I think that really is a big, it's a big thorny part uh, of this whole battle because I, I think, and this is just my own perspective, that 
everything you said is absolutely right. But I also think that systemic racism, both in the United States and, and also to some extent in Canada, also comes from the policies and the laws that that we as, you know, and I use the, the collective we as, um, you know, as white folks have implemented over many, many, many years. And I think that there is, while it is incredibly important for each of us to recognize the privilege that we have, I think it's also really important to understand how that, that privilege gets codified into laws and policies that are discriminatory and create systemic racial injustice that takes more than me changing or you changing or Adam changing in the near term to fix. And I think some of those structures have to be brought down uh, and they have to be brought down brought down politically. And I think that's where it gets thorny. Do I use my voice to attack those structures or to promote uh, uh, black and indigenous people of color's voices or both? Uh, and I think these are some of the things that we are collectively as a country, as, as white folks, as a society, as Americans and Canadians are figuring out now. Yeah. And um, I think it's kind of important. It is difficult to understand when to do this when you're kind of first learning about it, but it's understanding when you should just sit down and shut up and let them fight their fight. Let them speak, let them do their, their activism and, and just sit down and shut up and listen and let them talk and promote what they're saying. Because this isn't like, this isn't, what's going on in the world? Like, this isn't the Alicia show. This is a movement that needs to happen so that people of color can get treated equal to someone who is white. And it's, it's hard when you're first learning to know, when do I use my voice to fight? And when do I just shut up and let them speak? Speaking of that, Brands, companies, corporations speaking out on behalf of Black Lives Matter against oppression or against systemic racism. Good thing, bad thing, mixed bag, authentic, inauthentic. What's your opinion on that? I think it's very important for companies to speak up and now especially to show that they are there for the communities who are like people of color, like the black community, the indigenous community. And I think that it, I think that along with how important it is for them to make these messages, a lot of it is being used as an advertising tactic. They're trying to show if I post this message saying I stand with the black community, then the black community will shop here and will make more money. Whereas actual companies, a really good example is Ben and Jerry's. They are doing everything and more that is right in a company. They, they are paying their workers extra just so that they, like, the, um, the money that they make, why their ice cream is so expensive, is because they put that money back into the community for people who need it, as well as it is important for these companies to kind of speak up. Um, there are phoning companies as well. Like I mentioned, a lot of clothing companies, they like slavery still exists and not a lot of people know this. There is so much slavery in prisons and especially towards black inmates. They barely pay them and they make them do all this, 
hard physical labor to make all the clothes that people want to wear. And those companies that are uh, endorsing the slavery to create their merchandise are the same companies who are like, we stand with the black community. And it's, it's very hard to understand what community, like what companies actually care and what companies are just posting it because it's trendy right now. And Alicia, on the topic of giving back, something we do every episode is for every guest that we have, we donate on behalf of them to a mm-hmm. charity or cause that you think is really important right now. So tell us, what charity or cause are we donating to and why is it important right now? So the charity that I chose was one to help protect the rainforests. It's the Rainforest Action Network is what it's called. And it's a charity to prevent destruction of the world's rainforests. I feel fairly connected to this one because of the area that I live in, the the ecosystem is a rainforest. I live in a rainforest. And also recently with the Amazon burning down, it just, the Amazon collects so much carbon dioxide and it helps clean so much of the world's air. It is so important to protect these places because without healthy ecosystems, the world would pretty much burn and everyone would die. And we cannot have these positive changes to make if we don't have a world to live on. And that's why I chose to do the rainforest one. Very important. Alicia, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for this. You're welcome. And, and thank you up, guys for reaching Keep up the great work. So. It's worked well so far. And best <laughs> of luck to you. Thank you. <laughs> See you, Alicia. Bye. That was Alicia, and I'm telling you guys, Gen Z is going to save us. You can find Alicia on TikTok at Pasta Boy, that's Pasta, B-O-I-I, and on Instagram at Aliwe, A-L-E-Y-W-E-Y. Check her out, definitely worth a follow for some very important and very funny content. And if you're able to give a little this week, please go visit the Rainforest Action Network at act.ran.org. They're doing the work to save our planet, save our environment, and save us. We'll be featuring Alicia and the Rainforest Action Network all week on our Instagram and other platforms. And you can find us at SocietyBTStat on any social platform. You can also find this show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our listeners for tuning into episode two. We'll be back at it next Monday. Bye.